Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, lots of meetings recently in Hamilton Town Hall about the encampment situation. A lot of concerns voiced, lots of solutions thrown around. But what was accomplished? We're going to recap, and that's going to be part of our opening segment. Homelessness isn't the only concern, though. Canadians are dealing with food prices as high as they are, too. More expensive than ever for a simple grocery trip. There could be a solution, though. And we can talk about a new report out from the government about that. Food prices are up, but so are building costs, and homeowners are struggling as a result of that. And the Ontario government has launched a new program to recruit more truckers. Its purpose? To get more women into the industry. It's all coming up at the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Homelessness, uh, tent encampments. Uh, Hamilton has a series of meetings ongoing right now, and they had another one last night downtown at uh, the convention center. Uh, which was well attended by all uh, means, uh, people that were there. Uh, it was lively at times. It got a little heated at times uh, because it's a very passionate issue. I don't know if they accomplished a whole lot, though. Let me bring John Best into the conversation. John has been following this story. Uh, he is the publisher of the Bay Observer. Uh, John, good to have you back on the program. Uh, your thoughts about what you heard about last night, about uh, the way the city is handling this, uh, the, the responses that they got, and and I, I guess the, to use the old football analogy, are we moving the yard six here at all? I don't think so, Bill. Uh, unfortunately, uh, I watched the entire meeting and uh, I, I rewatched a bit of it uh, today. There was so much happening at that meeting. It, it was a little more controlled than the meeting uh, that happened last week on the mountain. They they got rid of the red and green cards, which some people objected to. Um Although, you know, I would say that, you know, when when you suppress people expressing their real thoughts on an issue, you get a lot of grumbling and talking over people, which we did see some of that last night. But, you know, the, the takeaway from the meeting is that we don't we're no further along than we were when staff originally presented this uh, uh, encampment protocol back in the early spring. Uh, they were told to go away and do some public consultation. They're two-thirds of the way through that now. Many questions were asked to uh, the, the head of housing, Michelle Baird, and, and she didn't have answers. And, and that is no reflection on her. She doesn't have answers because council hasn't made any decisions. And, and speaking of Michelle Baird, you have to give her credit uh, standing up there, uh, all kinds of incoming questions, some of them hostile, and she just kept her cool. And so I, I thought she she really did, a, I thought, a great job both at this meeting and the one last. But the bottom line is she has very little to work with in terms of trying to answer people's questions. And, you know, the, the clip that you had in your news, I think, was the telling one. Here we've got Sir John A. MacDonald. It's been closed for years and years. Uh, an obvious downtown, uh, at least temporary solution. And, uh, you know, the chair of the Board of Education issues a letter uh, saying, well, it's not available for uh, temporary housing because we're, we're negotiating with the province to demolish the thing. And, and the silos, uh, you know, both within the city of Hamilton and between education and, and the city of Hamilton, uh, and to some degree, even between Hamilton and the province are so obvious, you know, one of our members should get on the phone or go and see uh, Stephen Lecce right now and say, we, we can't have available empty schools uh, 
and homeless encampments if there's some way of putting the two together and reducing the the suffering of these people it's there there's a lot of bureaucratic uh, nonsense going on bill that you know Doug Ford or somebody i think could kind of cut through if uh, if they were so inclined well, but there is the problem, and I think you just hit the nail on the head. It's it's the silo situation that in which we're being governed. Uh, Sir John A. McDonald, by the way, for our London listeners, rather outside of the city, is is a rather large high school that's uh, actually almost kitty corner to to First Ontario Centre, Cops Coliseum, uh, and it's a huge tract of land. It's not just the building itself. There's a, a large playing field there, and it's been vacant for what five six years now, at least, yes. probably more. Uh, and, and the conundrum here is, what are we going to do with it? Well, it belongs to the Board of Education, not to the city of Hamilton. Uh, so it's the city really can't just say, OK, we'll move them in next week. Uh, and the board is saying no. Uh, somebody else brought up Delta Secondary, which is a similar old stately school of, in the east end of the city, which, again, uh, is vacant, not being used right now. Uh, but it's not as simple as just opening the door and say, OK, fine, here, you people over here, you people over here. Uh, there are liability issues. There's insurance issues. A number of things that have to go on. There's security issues that have to go on. It's it's not a simple solution. And as you say, the easiest way is just say no. Uh, we don't own it, and we can't buy it. Um, so you know, go on to Plan B. I, I think what I got out of the meeting yesterday, John, is there's inevitability here that a lot of people don't want to get their heads around is that we're going to have tent encampments for the foreseeable future. And I don't know how long that future is going to be, but they're happening one way or another. Well, they are partly because of these uh, problems that we just talked about with a large vacant school, uh, even the property on the school. Uh, you know, if there's a reason why people can't be inside the school, there's certainly a, a large piece of land there. And it, at the very minimum, uh, you know, you've got a building that's got hopefully uh, operating washrooms and some of those kind of amenities. And I, I guess what I would say to all of that is, you know, these buildings belong to the Board of Education. Well, yes, they do. They belong to the people of Ontario who have paid for them. And uh, there has to be a way of, uh, I can't believe we're we're this far down the road. And is there anywhere you can go where you could actually access a list of publicly owned lands in Hamilton that are either owned by Boards of Education, the city, or uh, the two senior governments? Where's that inventory? It may exist, but uh, it just seems to me that there there's so much uh, finger pointing. <clears throat> excuse me, and uh, uh, it, it, it's beyond uh, belief. And and the frustration of that crowd last night, it wasn't so much that they were the frustration was around do you support encampments or don't you. A lot of it had to do with just the you, you know they they can't get they can't understand and nor should they understand why. Uh, governments can't make uh, a, a vacant building uh, available, even even just get us through this winter. Uh, the other property that was talked about, I think, in, in some of the email exchanges before the meeting was uh, that whole uh, James Street North uh, complex that was all public housing. It's now shut down. Um, and, and, the, and the, so somebody said, well, why can't we put an encampment there? Why can, couldn't we at least put a tent encampment there? And the answer is, well, the CNR is, uh, we're in a legal dispute with the CNR. Well, that legal dispute is over a proposed development that's, that's coming. In the meantime, the city owns that property. They can do what they want with it in terms of allowing uh, temporary use. 
So there's there's a lot of excuse making and finger pointing uh, and siloing, and uh, I'll tell you, it was frustrating. It was painful to watch uh, last night, really. Well, and what exacerbates it is uh, there were a number of calls by both you know city officials and and some of the people that made presentations uh, to suggest that the, both the federal and provincial governments have to be part of the solution here. But when you get comments uh, like like we got from Premier Ford yesterday, he was asked about this. He wasn't at the meeting, clearly, but he was making an announcement in another part of the province. And during the Q&A, this came up. And he says uh, he doesn't like uh, tent encampments. He says it's not feasible for families living near them. And residents in the tents need to, quote, unquote, move on. Move on to where, Mr. Premier? I mean, it, if that's the attitude of, of the provincial government, uh, you know, don't hold your breath waiting for any help from them to try to get this problem solved. Well, he probably needs to spend a little more time. It's it's about a five dollar cab ride from Queens Park to Allen Gardens, where where he can get a better look at these ten encampments. There's probably not that many up in Etobicoke where he lives, but yeah, I, I it, it's really frustrating. But also getting back to the city, Bill. Uh, so this meeting takes place the evening of the day that uh, council starts setting priorities and they had their first priority session. And, you know, you got to give the mayor credit for pulling that together. Uh, it's got to be like herding cats uh, dealing with that organization. But they were talking about asset management and and here's where I'll probably get myself in some trouble. But uh, we're, we're talking about managing assets. We're spending $3.4 billion of public money on a transit system uh, at a time when we had a $2 billion uh, infrastructure deficit. And, and then last year, it was revealed that we got another billion dollars in underground pipes that need to be fixed. Uh, when we're talking about priorities, uh, what about that priority? Um, I mean, you got councillors uh, very much in favor of that who are also very sympathetic to the uh, homeless people. And I can only conclude from that, Bill, that they must believe in Ronald Reagan's trickle-down economics that uh, somehow by building this uh, system, this LRT system, uh, that, that the benefits will actually trickle down as far as homeless people or, or people with, uh, who, who need uh, you know, affordable housing. And uh, I, I don't think it's going to happen. And, you know, if we go back to 2007, 2008, when this LRT idea was first floated, um, the thought was that we, we needed it in part to revive our moribund uh, development industry. We needed it to stimulate growth. We needed it to stimulate apartment buildings and uh, all kinds of development. I would argue that, that given the current situation with the pressure on housing with uh, Bill 23, well, that development is going to take place with or without a train running down King Street. Uh, you just need a good transit system to connect uh, the dots. And, you know, you got to remember that Doug Ford did at one point say we could have the billion dollars uh, with no strings attached. So, you know, I, I think if we want to really set priorities, I think I think there's an area where we need to see if, if that money can be diverted to some of these far more urgent needs. Well, and, and I know they keep throwing dollar figures around like that. And, well, you know, we can build, quote, unquote, affordable housing along the route uh, in some of those other buildings. Well, you know, the, the city hasn't got any money to do that right now. And and the province doesn't seem inclined to do that. 
Uh, I don't see the private sector jumping on uh, on board for something like that either. So, you know, we, we, we have to, I think, look at this realistically. And they heard some of the stories from people that were making presentations last night uh, about people that are about to be evicted from their apartment. And one gentleman in particular had moved back here because of an ailing father and uh, you know, the money he gets from ODSB doesn't even cover a rent for a one-bedroom apartment here. So that's the dilemma they're facing. Those stories are important. It it's, may not get us any closer to a solution, but what it did, it painted a picture of just how severe the circumstances are for these people. Uh, what choice does this guy have? You know, he's being evicted because he can't pay the rent. And like he said, he says, at the end of the month, I'll be living in a tent. What other options do I have? We, we have to give them options. We can't just wring our hands and say, uh, boy, if the feds and province gave us the money, we could do this. If they gave them the money this afternoon, John, as soon as at noon today, they can't start building right away. It's not going to happen. This problem is not going to be solved. And you're absolutely right. We're talking, well, we're just about into July now. Uh, they're not going to put a hammer to a piece of wood and start building houses even this year, in this calendar year, probably for a variety of reasons. So what are we doing about it? And and it's going to get cold. And, you know, you look at all these empty buildings and say, well, yeah, but you can't have that one. Uh, so, yeah. Somebody's got to get their heads around this. And, start, you know, it's it's everybody's problem. It's not just the city council's problem. You know, it's an urgent issue. And, and it, I mean, the authority exists to cut through some of these uh, jurisdictional issues. Just crazy to be thinking, even thinking about tearing down that uh, that school right in the heart of the city, uh, which has had encampments outside it, uh, you know, in, in the past. Absolutely insane that those two boats are passing in the night. A uh, thousand people show up for a meeting uh, to underline the urgency of, of, of finding shelter for people. Uh, it's just insane. And uh, if it takes a senior government to sort that out, uh, um, we've really got to do something about this public owned property that's owned by all three levels. We've got to get a handle on exactly where it is and what the possibilities are. But uh, uh, I, I certainly think that the woman who spoke out about Sir John Aim was on the right track. Uh, that's the kind of sensible, uh, you know, she asked the question, get the water turned on, get people in there. And you know what, the fact that we can't do that uh, is an embarrassment. It's an absolute embarrassment. And, and you know, there were a number of people who were in encampments that spoke last night, and some of their stories were very compelling. Uh, but there's so much posturing by council, and uh, it's just, uh, I'll tell you, you saw people, uh, I, I watched it on Cable 14, and you saw people towards the end of the meeting walking out, shaking their heads. And uh, that that's kind of, you know, I think pretty well sums it up, really. Well, I don't think anybody went in there with the illusion that was going to get solved last night. And and and, uh, and, and the, as you say, as people left, I mean, did, did they have any inclination at all that, that the city was moving in the right direction, that they had a, at least a like a list of places or a list of options at this stage? Because I, I, I'm not getting that feeling at all. Uh, I, I think what's going to have to happen here is a couple of things. First of all, city council, who ultimately will make this decision, by the way, are going to have to have the courage to stand up to a bunch of residents and simply say, we're putting tent encampments here, 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 and here. It's not going to be forever, uh, but they, they it's it's got to happen. Because the numbers are growing, John, as you heard last night. Uh, they're not getting smaller uh, because of the economic situation that they're in. 
and something's got to happen here. And in the meantime, what's your plan for the future? They still don't have one. This this council, and I know it's a relatively new council, but you know, you signed up for the job. Uh, they, the, their expertise right now is vacillating, and this is not the time for vacillation. It's the time for for courage and 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 some vision. And I'm not hearing a whole lot of it from from the elected officials. And and to your point, don't blame city staff for this. They don't set policy. It's that 16 people around the, the horn that do that. Yeah, from a policy standpoint, city staff are exactly where they were four months ago when they were asked to start this public consultation. They have no more information, no more direction, and uh, nobody seems to want to get their arms around the entirety of of the piece of business, which includes why can't we go into Sir John A. or, or other vacant public buildings uh, around town? Why are we accepting that? And saying that means we we now need to continue with tents, uh, you know it's it, it's really crazy, Bill. But uh, there we are. Well, we'll see what happens, and the city responds to it. I'm not holding my breath for any of the immediate uh, reaction to it, though. Uh, John, as always, thanks so much for this. Really appreciate the time today. My pleasure, Bill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I'm not talking about the cost of putting food on the table because that's continuing to rise, even though. Uh, the announcement yesterday about the inflation rate having been reduced, uh, grocery prices are still one of the driving factors in keeping those numbers not to where we'd like them to be. And now there is a suggestion from the Competition Bureau that Canada's grocery sector needs more competition in that sector. In a uh, highly anticipated study released, uh, the Competition Bureau says concentration in the grocery industry has increased in recent years and the largest grocers have increased the amount that they make on food sales. No kidding. Tell us something we don't know. Uh, we're talking about the the big three, of course, and uh, they've all appeared before parliamentary committees, and uh, they've all said that you know they gee, we only make a couple of cents off each basket of groceries, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but there's something going on here because uh, consumers are feeling more and more as if uh, they're getting squeezed in this situation. I, I don't know. Let's address a couple of these issues with our next guest. Uh, Marvin Ryder is a professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. Marvin, great to have you with us again. Thanks for joining us. Glad to be with you, Bill. Uh, we know about the big three, of course, Loblaws, Sobeys, and Metro, and, and I'm sure that's what the Competition Bureau is referring to. Uh, but but saying we need more competition, we need more grocery stores, uh, saying it is one thing, getting it done is quite another, isn't it? Well, you're, you're right. So first, maybe a little historical context. Uh, if you went back 30, 35 years, there were the big eight grocery store chains out there. Today, there are five companies that really dominate the grocery space. Three of them are what we would call grocery store chains. One of them is Empire. That owns Safeway and Sobeys. You're familiar with Metro. That also mm-hmm. owns Food Basics. <clears throat> and then you have Loblaws, which has a number of different brands, Fortino's, uh, Real Canadian Superstore, No Frills, but they're all owned by the same company. The other two are not exactly grocery chains. One of them is Walmart. And the, the final one, the fifth one, is Costco. Both of those companies sell a lot more than just groceries. And so the comments from the Competition Bureau were designed to focus in on, on the grocery industry. And they say, okay, look, we've had concentration. We've gone from eight to three. We need more competition out there. As you say, that's great to say. But government doesn't start the competition. All it can do is create an environment friendly so that an entrepreneur can decide to jump in. And we have seen a few independent grocery store chains jump in in the last couple of years. 
uh, uh, to start up and get into the market, but it is difficult to do. And and I, unless you're going to hand out great wads of public cash to incentivize people to start a new business, I think the only other way to encourage it would be to speak to international groups like an American food chain or a European food chain and say, hey, have you thought about coming to Canada, opening a store? Maybe that additional competition might, might, help create a little more uh, 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 sensitivity among those companies to increasing food prices. Why the, the, the contraction then? Is, is it just buy it? Some, and by the way, the, uh, you know, independent grocers have been around. I mean, uh, some of our listeners uh, from, from a few years ago might remember a grocery store called IGA. The, the IGA stood for International Grocers Association. And, and, and they still exist, that association does, but I don't see any more IGA stores, not in the Hamilton area anyway, over the last number of years. Uh, it's is it, it's becoming a lucrative business again in some people's minds. You would think that some people would take an interest in this, but to start up something and, and try to compete with the big names you just mentioned here is, is a monumental task. It, it is. So you mentioned IGA. IGA still exists today. You may see some of their stores known as Foodland. Uh, and this, this is one of the funny things. Many people might say, Marvin, I don't know what you're talking about. There's lots of competition. The thing is that Companies that appear to be competing are actually owned by the same company. So take Fortino's. That was an independent grocer based primarily in the greater Hamilton area for years and years and years and years. And then it was acquired by Loblaws. And so that's what's caused the concentration. The independents who were successful have been bought by the big chains and added to their to their brand list. Now, Bill, I should add that the Competition Bureau says we'd like to see more competition. We'd like to see maybe some international players get into the market. We're also worried that there isn't enough standardization that allows consumers to pick the best deal. So if you go to the store to buy something, whatever it happens to be, let's suppose it comes in a can or a jar or a bottle of some sort, how do you know you're getting the best price? Because that container is 275 grams, that container is 200 grams, that container is 350 grams. How do you make a comparison so you're sure you're getting the best pricing? So they've argued that we need to have more standardized products available to people. And then you're actually right again. They did say, look, these retailers have increased their profit margins, but marginally and modestly. Now, what does that mean? It says that profit margins on food have increased 1% to 2%. And that trend started well before COVID. It didn't happen in just the last year or two. It's happened over a sort of a 20-year time period. So what does that mean? Well, on a $100 basket of goods, grocery stores are making $1 to $2 more per transaction. This is not the root cause of high food inflation. That's a different beastie altogether. But it's also being a commentary on our food system saying it's not as efficient as we consumers would like. Well, let me uh, talk about the elephant in the room uh, and price fixing. And, and we know that they've already admitted uh, that they did that with the price of bread and they paid a hefty fine. Some say not enough, but be that as it might. Uh, but that opens the door up to the conversation about, well, is, is there collusion with other prices in the grocery stores? Uh, the, these guys talk about a lot of stuff. Uh, did they limit it to just bread or is there something else going on here that should be investigated? Right. So again, let me just say it a little differently, Bill. The smaller the number of players you have in an industry, the easier it is to do some sort of price fixing. And so to take another favorite topic for people, when you think of major gas stations, 
Again, we only have four or five chains of these out there. And it's funny how that when one raises its price, they all raise their price. And when one lowers their price, they all seem to go down. Um, is the is this same thing happening among food prices? Now, the major chains are very uh, transparent with each other on their prices. In other words, if I am a Loblaws person, I can walk into a metro store with a tablet computer and note all of the prices on the shelves. Now, what do you do with that information? Well, the theory is, if I have better information, I can better set my prices. But I could also say, hmm, you know, their price for peanut butter or their price for margarine or their price for uh, potato chips, hmm, maybe we should match it. And and uh, uh, in that sense, they collude. Now, collusion requires something organized at the top. In other words, uh, executives are meeting to set these kinds of things. This is what happened with the bread story. The mm -hmm. executives actually met, and they met also with a baker of that. That was Weston Foods. In the case of just being uh, an informed company, that's not collusion. But the smaller the number of players, the more likely collusion is to happen in the food industry. Well, uh, we'll talk about that, I guess, in the forthcoming days and weeks about that. Some are suggesting even price controls, but uh, that's a political decision uh, that uh, is going to take an awful lot of debate. Uh, but it, it does beg the question, though, about, you know, if more competition is, is the goal here, and that's what the Competition Bureau is suggesting, uh, you know, where does that come from? As you mentioned, the, the chances of, of something organically starting here within our borders is, is pretty remote. Uh, I mean, you know, some people are going to say, wait a second, I see Safeway commercials. Well, these guys are all interrelated and inbred. I mean, we should, when we're talking about Loblaws, also talk about Shoppers Drug Mart, uh, which sells an awful lot of groceries these days, too. So, I mean, that, that joins into the family. But but do you open up the border, though, Marvin? I mean, you know, do we start looking at Topps Markets uh, from from uh, Western New York or, or Kroger from, uh, you know, another big chain down in the States? Uh, do they even have an interest in expanding into this country? Well, again, those are great questions. So I think what what the Competition Bureau is trying to say is we should at least put out the welcome mat. Let the, the world know that Canada is open for other retail chains to come north of the border. And if they if they need a little encouragement, and I don't quite know what that means, but if they need a little encouragement, uh, offer it to them as part of government policy. The, the challenge also, I think, uh, and it's a backhanded uh, statement in this report, is that over the last 20 years, we've seen companies merge. We've seen retail giants merge. And those mergers are always approved by that same group of people, the Competition Bureau. So wait a minute, if you're saying we don't have enough retailers, why did you approve these other things? We've had this debate, for instance, in the Shaw-Rogers merger. Mm -hmm. We lose a major player. Is that helpful to the situation? The smaller the number of companies, the less competition, the more we are not sure the consumers are getting the best prices. So I wonder if in a way they're almost indicting themselves and saying, we've made a mistake in the last 20 years by allowing some of these mergers to happen, or at least not putting more strings on these mergers. It's, it's a bit like shutting the, the barn door after the horses have already left, but I think there's a bit of an indictment to themselves here. Well, and we know the politics of this too, don't we? And I'm glad you brought up the uh, the comparator with the the telecommunications industry. Uh, God forbid somebody like Verizon or some of the other United States carriers uh, decide that they want to, to make inroads into here. The, you know, the the big three in telecommunications jump up and down and said, "You're going to put us out of business." You know, how? What do you think you're doing? Uh, 
the guys Loblaws and, and Sobies and Metro and, and others are going to probably sing from the same song sheet. And, and, you know, governments tend to respond to that sort of thing. They do. Uh, having said that, you know, uh, locally, you may be aware of a, a retail store in the, in the grocery industry called Farm Boy. It is yep. an independent one that has come into the place. Longo's is an independent chain that has come into the place. And I think if I'm a consumer, um, it is worth my while. If I am worried about food prices and food inflation, it is worth my while to check out some of these companies and and decide whether the big chains really deserve my loyalty. Uh, again, if I am loyal to a company and don't do any switching, what is their incentive to give me the best prices? They know I'm going to keep coming back. And in some cases, you know, these these big retail chains have added things like points programs where I can collect bonus points that again keeps you a loyal customer, but it might not be getting you the best price on a basket of groceries. You owe it to yourself to check out some of these new chains when they appear, uh, new stores when they appear, uh, even check out your local farmer's market, what have you. It, it really is up to the consumer to try to get the best prices they can. Yeah. Um, matter of fact, we got a farm boy around the corner from us uh, and a uh, great store, by the way. There's a free plug for them. And they've they've just opened one in Burlington, I understand. But it's it, you know what? It's almost a specialty store, though, Marvin. I don't know if you've been in the store itself. Uh, all they sell is food. Uh, and, you know, if you, if you want paper towels or something like that, go someplace else because they don't have them on the shelves. But but they they kind of it's almost like they're focusing on on you know things that you're going to be consuming in that way. Uh, but the other products that you might find in a larger store like a Loblaws uh, just aren't there. Maybe maybe that's the future. It's almost like boutique stores. Uh, you know, just saying this is where we're going to go for this. But I don't know if that's necessarily going to have a, an impact on pricing. Right. Well, again, I think we, you, you find your competitors where you find your competitors. Remember these big three retail chains, the Empire, the, the Metro and, and the Loblaws, they've also diversified away from groceries. You think of President's Choice Financial uh, or you think of uh, going to Joe Fresh and buying clothing in a supermarket, whoever wanted that. So they've also wandered a bit from their original mission. And sometimes the bigger you get, <clears throat> the less focused you are on giving people the best value. This is where an independent can come in and say, look, I'm not going to deal with those other kinds of things. I'm not going to try to be a bank and try to offer you cell phones and, and electronic devices. I'm just going to focus on food. And maybe it's worth your while to take a look at them. Every consumer has to find the right places to, to stretch those dollars. Very, I got about a minute left, but I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about the inflation rate and the reduction that was announced uh, down to 3.4% uh, for the month of May. Are you encouraged by that? Absolutely. This is getting in the right direction. Now, I was discouraged a month ago when inflation went from 43 to 4.4%. I thought, oh my God, we've gone through all of this tough work and it went the wrong direction. To see it down to 3.4% renews my hope that we may actually get below 3%, perhaps by the early fall. And why is that important to people? The more we get inflation into a 2% range, like 2.8 or 2.5, that will mean that the Bank of Canada can start backing down those interest rates, which, by the way, are themselves inflationary. If you read the report yesterday, they mm -hmm. said uh, our inflation rate would be lower if we had not raised interest rates as much as we have, because that's caused the cost of home ownership to go up nearly 29% compared to a year ago. 
So I'm, I'm encouraged. The only big discouraging point remains, as we've been talking about food, food inflation, 9%. You know, you cut that in half, 4.5% is still too high. And I really want to see that number start to come down. I'm hopeful as more local Canadian-made produce and fruits and vegetables, what have you, start coming on the scene, maybe, maybe we can start to see that come down as well. And maybe by the time we get to the fall, we can get inflation lower. So good news report, not a perfect report, but we're mo- we're back moving in the right direction. Exactly. Well, here's hoping that that does come to pass. Marvin, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this today. Glad to be with you, Bill. Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We've spent a lot of time talking about putting food on the table and how the cost of that has gone up. Uh, and there was a big debate about the housing crisis. Hamilton had a uh, public meeting about this yesterday. It was loud and long. And uh, we're talking about putting roofs on pe- over people's heads. That's really what it comes down to. But when you talk to the people who are going to build those or should be building them, uh, they're telling you a different story. All that stuff that we talked about that's impacting you and me at the grocery store and 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 at home hardware or, or wherever you're going is impacting these guys too. Exorbitant construction costs for residential real estate across the Canada is exacerbating the country's housing affordability crisis. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Richard Lyle. Richard is the president of the Residential Construction Council of Ontario. Uh, Richard, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the conversation today. Good morning, Bill. Glad to be here. Well, let's talk about the impact your industry is feeling uh, because of this. I've talked to a few contractors, and by the way, good luck getting a contractor these days. That's another problem. <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, you know, I, I talked to you. I said I want to get some work done on the outside of the house, and he says, uh, "I said, when can you come?" And he said, "Well, what's this? Twenty twenty three? Let me look." And, and and it's getting to be like that. But he also mentioned, as I had a conversation with him, about the cost of materials, and I, I know it went up a lot during the pandemic and some of the lockdowns. Yeah. Uh, it's come down. But it's still it's a it's a factor in whether or not these guys can even build, isn't it? Well, they're very difficult circumstances. You know, we've talked about the whole COVID we've effect that we had, and more recently, I mean, the last the latest numbers on inflation are fairly positive in terms of a lot of uh, material costs uh, and other costs have been dropping. Although the cost of housing isn't dropping, and that's that's huge, and and food, of course, is still up there and. Food and housing are the two most important things for most families in Ontario. Uh, in certain material areas, you run into uh, production um, uh, um, capacity, right? So, like we've got a shortage of bricks. Uh, 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 one uh, kiln in Ontario is shutting down now for six weeks, and so people are scrambling to find out where can we get some more bricks, right? Things like that. The concrete industry. Uh, and, and it was very hard to calculate or figure out where things were going, like during COVID. Initially, as you remember, the sort of the market tanked, and then it exploded. And But in that intervening time period, you had a lot of manufacturers, and I've been through this, where they're saying, okay, how much do we need to produce in the next uh, 12 months? And so they'll go, God, we're tanking, so let's cut back on production. And that has a whole domino effect, because they have their own supply chain. So you know, we had this 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 uh, convulsion uh, in the market and in construction, and then in addition to that, you know, we've had the interest rate, uh, uh, mortgage rate uh, problems, and all those things, and we've had um, other issues related to labor supply and uh, the approvals process and getting things approved, and 
And, you know, a lot of people don't realize just because you get something approved doesn't mean to go ahead and build it, especially if the circumstances change in the interim. You're not going to charge off and build something you got approved for if you're going to go bankrupt, right? Exactly. So a lot of issues. Well, and a couple of other things about that, too, because we talked about the cost of the materials themselves, which, of course, is going to increase the cost of, of the job uh, yes. and getting the labor for it. So that's gone up, and that's going to be a bit of a sticker shock for people uh, that are looking to get some work done or to try to build an addition or build something or other. But there's another element to this, too, that I, I was uh, made aware of just earlier this week, Richard, and I'm sure you guys are feeling in your industry. If the cost of materials is going up, the cost of insuring it is also going up. And that's something that you may not even understand or even consider uh, until you start buying the materials and start building things and then call the insurance company. Uh, you know, they've got to cover their costs too. So it's a, it's a vicious cycle we're in here, isn't it? It is. It is. Now, you know, again, uh, the most recent inflation numbers, there's some positive, some positive notes there that, that are good. And, um, uh, and there's also some signs that the uh, the heat is coming off the economy a little bit because, of course, that surprised everybody. You know, a lot of the models were not capturing what was really happening. And so, you know, where they expected the economy to turn down sooner, it uh, it didn't. Of course, that's what they're trying to do with the with the interest rates is to try to cool things off a little bit. Housing is still hot. In fact, housing sort of bounced back. So. You know, we might see another rate increase. Uh, I think the odds on, or if you were to bet on it, you probably have another 25 point increase, but then that'll be it uh, because there are trends in the other direction and they do need to get that inflation under control. Now, food, big challenge there because of other climatic factors, you know, stuff that's been happening in the States. Uh, 25% of our produce comes from about 1% of land in North America. Uh, which is in uh, California. So it's, uh, you know, it's very uh, insecure that way. And then, of course, we've had the unusual forest fires and things like that. But that's not really affecting uh, the economy. But it, uh, the climate change issues are, are certainly front of mind. And, and there is no magic bullet here. There is no one thing to get done to the solution. But is it fair to say, though, Richard, that given some of the challenges your industry is facing right now, if interest rates started to come down, that would be a big help. Oh, absolutely. Yes, yeah. so that that would help quite a bit. And uh, and it's very important because that, you know, the the inflationary factors are uh, are, are, you know, relative to wages and 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 cost of living are critically important. But, you know, to another point there, we've got to really I liken it to we've got to pitch a perfect game on housing. We've got to get it everything right. And we've got to, you know, leave no stone unturned. So, for example, you know, on on taxation on new housing in the last decade, it really and no one was really paying attention to this because you have different actors here. The taxes on new housing really went right through the roof. You know, the HST, because of the way that's structured, uh, the development charges that have increased, you know, eight, nine hundred percent in certain areas. There's other taxes, fees and levies. So. Now, with new housing, you're looking at on a million dollars worth of new residential real estate, you're looking at, uh, you know, about $310,000 in, in taxes. And uh, they're too high. Uh, we, we're, we're overtaxed, uh, undersupplied. Uh, they didn't pay attention to the demographics until it was too late because, uh, you know, we've got the baby boomers retiring. We do have uh, immigrants coming and we need them because without immigration, our population would actually fall. And we and worse, we would not have. A lot of the workers and and employees that we need to make the economy work, 
Um, but all of this is coming together at once. So in, in terms of tackling this, you know, when people often say, okay, hey, we're going we're gonna to do this. We're going to allow secondary suites. We're going to do laneway, you know, whatever. Is that going to fix the problem? No, there's about 20 parts of fixing the problem here. And they all have to be done pretty much at the same time. And uh, so it's a daunting task. The funny thing is, I think I think we can do it. Now, I might be completely delusional, but but I really do think the feds really have to be engaged and something has to be done on the, on the taxes, amongst other things. So uh, but the material supply, critical, absolutely critical. And, you know, to a certain extent, um, uh, but, you know, one thing I always say to people is uh, let the industry worry about its labor and material supply situation and whatever else like that. That's our business. You know, uh, just give us the give us the opportunity to, you know, let the market work and let us do this stuff. And then there's the whole social housing element, which uh, which is vitally important. But that's where the that's where the state needs to play. But they got to let us do our jobs. Well, exactly. And I actually I was talking to one of your members a few weeks ago about this. And, you know, the, and again, I go back to interest rates because it seems to be just the, 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 the ghost that's haunting over just about every aspect of the things you and I have just talked about here today. Uh, he says, you know, if, and this guy's a developer and, and a, yeah. a very good one. Uh, but he says, if I'm going to go build a subdivision, he says, I don't have the money in my pocket to do that. Okay. I've got to finance that. And if interest yeah. rates keep going up, that cost goes up. And he says a lot of the people in the industry right now are saying, you know what, I'm, I'm just I'm going to hold off for now. I, I can't do that right now. I may have to wait six or eight months until the Bank of Canada starts to lower the rates again. Well, when we're in a critical situation with housing right now, that's not the news you want to hear, is it? No, no, not a bit. And in fact, you know, the other the other problem there, too, is that uh, you got to plug this into it. It's what's happening with commercial real estate. Yeah, and there's a lot of lot of commercial real estate that's going underwater. So that means you're going to have a lot of uh, um, bankruptcies, foreclosures, things like that there, and um, and that's going to put pressure on money supply, liquidity. Uh, you know, the amount of of money that's available to actually borrow. So that will raise the cost of that too as well. So you've got that challenge there uh, going, and that's where. You know, for example, back in the uh, 60s and 70s, we had somewhat similar circumstances, big immigration, huge demand and supply of housing, um, rising interest rates in the 70s. You remember those? Uh, and um, but there were there was a tax, uh, you know, they had multiple unit residential building uh, programs that used uh, work through the tax system to get um, um, uh, products built. And we built tens of thousands of units of purpose-built rental housing. We really need to go back to that uh, as a very big part of the solution. But there's other elements too, as you know. And some things have already been happening. You know, the province has passed four laws now to try to get housing going. But it's it's almost like, you know, it's like one step forward, two steps back almost because circumstances have moved so suddenly in the last three to four years that you know, various entities and administrations and so on are just scrambling to try to keep up. And then some people haven't really caught up with reality yet. I mean, you know, there's a lot of people hurting out there in a way that we haven't seen in gen in a generation or longer. Uh, and I think a lot of decision makers who are, you know, older, possibly, and already own their homes or whatever, they're not feeling it. And but it's happening big time. And when I see Numbers like homelessness has doubled in a year. That scares the hell out of me because where is yeah. it going, right? 
Exactly. And and look at, you know, I, I know it's kind of a bleak picture. It is going to get better. We know that. But it, it's it's going to take, I think, a bit of a push. And well, you know, on, on that note, Bill, I'm, I'm feeling kind of positive, even with the election of Olivia Chow. You know, I know the boss, uh, the premier said, uh, you know, it's going to be the worst thing that could ever happen to us. And of course, the next day he said, OK, that was just during the campaign. It's over now. <laughs> We're going to work together. And she's saying she is making some very positive noises because I think she gets density and she understands housing. I do know that. I've talked to her about it and she gets the issues and so on. Uh, now, that's at the municipal level, and that's Toronto. But Toronto's important. Where Toronto goes, a lot of other municipalities are going to follow, like Mississauga, that yeah. is probably the worst place for housing supply so far. But, you know, the 905 in Niagara, the Golden Horseshoe, they will follow much of what Toronto does. So she's in a pivotal role here. And a good thing she was an MP for eight years. So she knows Ottawa. She knows how to punch exactly. the buttons up there. And, of course, you know, the NDP are the ones keeping the Liberals in power. So I think she's got some leverage. So it's going to be interesting to see sure if is. we can finally kick that dog awake. Well, let's uh, pick off this conversation a little bit later on. Where timers our enemy, as always. I always appreciate your always. time, Richard. Thanks for this today. Thank you, Bill. Great question. Richard Lyle, president of the uh, Re- Re- Residential Construction Association. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We were talking about the supply chain shortages. and uh, it, It's a lot better than it was a year, year and a half or so ago. Uh, but let's face it, getting goods to market, and uh, by that I mean you know the delivery of those goods uh, to grocery stores, uh, department stores, whatever the case might be, is key. Uh, we remember the you know the the bad old days when there were big you know, swaths of empty shelves. Uh, that seems to be getting a whole lot better these days. But we're told by people in the industry that there are still staffing shortages. In other words, they don't have enough drivers. Well, a government policy announced uh, yesterday in uh, compliance, by the way, and in conversation with the trucking industry may address that. And uh, it's providing free training for truck drivers and for female truck drivers. Joining us to talk about this is Jonathan Blackham. Jonathan is the Director of Policy and Public Affairs for the Canadian Trucking Alliance. Uh, Jonathan, good to have you on the show. Thanks for the time today. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. We've, we've known about shortages of laborers, et cetera, and truckers. And, and I, I know an awful lot of people in the industry uh, that have done quite well for themselves, and, and they're bending over backwards to try to alleviate some of the pressure that's on right now. But when it comes right down to it, you, you just don't have enough people behind the wheel to get these goods here in a timely fashion, do you? Well, that's that's right. And, you know, I, I think a lot of <clears throat> sectors out there right now are, are facing labor shortages. But in your intro, I think you you hit the nail on the head, you know, just the fundamental role trucking plays in the economy and getting getting goods to market and goods to people is, is undeniable. Um, from a from a job vacancy perspective, we have one of the highest vacancy rates in the entire economy. Nationally, we're talking over 20,000 job vacancies. And here in Ontario, we're talking somewhere between six and ten thousand job vacancies. So, so quite significant. Are those jobs that have left? I mean, let's face it, everybody got messed up because of COVID and lockdowns, et cetera. And 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 truckers were, you know, they were they were part of the solution. I mean, they did some incredible things and uh, and some brave things, quite frankly. Uh, when a lot of people were locking their doors and saying, "Well, wait till this thing is over," the truckers were out there doing their best to get things done. Uh, but there's an increased demand right now. Uh, and I know in talking to some of the people in the industry, Jonathan, uh, some of those shortages you've just referenced here were in existence before the pandemic, and, and it's just become worse after the pandemic. They are. So those numbers I referenced are, are job vacancies. They're jobs here now that could be filled by uh, by someone interested 
in joining the industry or or taking that uh, taking that job. You, you you know, I wanted to pick up on something you mentioned too, and in, in that um, you know the efforts through through the pandemic, which were just unbelievable from from our industry. We're so proud of the the men and women in our industry and and what they did for for Ontarians and, and Canadians through that. Uh, but it also sort of exposed some of our our bigger cracks as well. You know, trucking has one of the oldest workforces in the entire economy, and and during the the pandemic, we we saw a, one a closing of training schools, so a slowing of new entrants. But at the same time, we also saw it accelerate retirements in in our industry. You know, it was a stressful time for for drivers and and for everybody. And it really sort of pushed uh, you know the 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 older demographic in our in our industry to maybe look at retirement faster than they would have uh, under normal circumstances. So it really sort of made a bad situation worse for us. What about immigration? That's increased significantly in the last little while. And that, that's a good news story as far as, uh, you know, dealing with the, the shortcomings in our economy right now. Uh, is that going to be part of the solution for the trucking industry too? It's one of the solutions. So, you know, from, from our perspective, there's really three sort of main things that the industry needs to do. And we're investing in, in all of them. One is immigration. Um, we've had some positive news federally uh, that, that trucking's been granted access to the express entry program, which is fantastic. Here in Ontario, um, a few years ago, uh, the Ford government granted us access to the OINP program, which is the provincial nominee program. Wonderful news as well. The other one is, is training. Um, you know, we need to uh, to invest in training and to look to bring programs online to bring down barriers for folks. And and finally, the third is just to to spread the good good word to to you know come on shows like yours and to and to get the message out there that there are a lot of great careers in trucking and a lot of opportunity for people. I mentioned uh, attracting women and, and, and trying to recruit women for this as well. Uh, only 2% of Ontario truck drivers are women at this particular stage anyway. Uh, so the government has stepped in here because, there are, let's face it, if you want to attract women into this industry, more women into this industry, uh, there are certain barriers that need to be addressed, like daycare and a few other things uh, that, that are going to be factors in whether or not uh, women even want to pursue this career. So is, talk to us a little bit about the government assistance here. Yeah, so yesterday there was a, a fantastic program announced by uh, by Premier Ford and Minister McNaughton. Um, it's 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 not being run run through us, so this is this is to no no, no benefit to the the CTA. It's being run by an organization called the Women's Trucking Federation of Canada. Wonderful group, um, wonderful program, and and like you said, it it really does two things. One, it provides support for training, and we're talking world class training here, two two hundred hours, which um, you know, goes above and beyond and uses all kinds of, of wonderful techniques and, 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 and technology, but to also to to support, to provide supports that you mentioned, childcare costs and, and transportation costs and, and those sorts of things that, that go along with, with taking on a new career. So um, wonderful program. Uh, we couldn't be, couldn't be happier for the Women's Trucking Federation and, and quite frankly, for the industry. Uh, and, and by the way, we should also mention too that this training that uh, that you've just referenced and, and some of these other assistance programs uh, is also going to cover training for things like forklift operation uh, as well. Because let's face it, if you're going to talk about the trucking industry, the uh, the warehouse in industry is part of that as well. Uh, you can't have one without the other. And I know there are shortages there too. So uh, this seems to be the, the kind of wine raging assistance that that your industry has been looking for for the last little while. 
Yeah, and I, I think you hit the nail on the head there. You know, there's obviously the 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 main focus of this program is for driving. There are also things like like dock work and, and forklift operations included in this, but the opportunity in our sector goes way beyond just these two uh, these two things. There's there's office, there's management, there's HR roles, IT recruitment, sales, dock mechanics, and so on and so on and so on. And and there's shortages in all of these these positions. It's it's most acute in driving, obviously, but uh, there is a host of opportunity in our industry and in, in all types of roles. So we're really just encouraging folks who who maybe haven't thought about the trucking industry, haven't thought of of that as a sector they can make a career in. You know, we're we're open for business. We have jobs. We're we're, we're welcoming community based um, industry. Lots of family run businesses. You know, we really encourage encourage uh, folks to, to have a look at us. How difficult is it? Somebody was just mentioning an email here from uh, from Jim uh, saying, how difficult is it to get a license uh, to handle one of these rigs? I guess it's an AZ license and there's a DZ license too. Uh, is, is it is it time consuming? Is it expensive? It, it, it is, but, you know, I, I think it pays, it, it pays itself back in the fact that you're, you know, if you're a trained driver with, with good skills on the other end, you're almost guaranteed um, a job, but it, it, the training itself is, is a little over a hundred hours um, at which point then you can go challenge the provincial licensing exam um, if you pass that you have your your commercial license and then from there we're really looking uh, you know we encourage folks to look for companies that have good onboarding programs mentorship and and we'll really do that sort of on the job. Um, training. So it's, uh, you know, and, and I mentioned that because it's sort of another area that we as the association are really focused in and looking for for more training support to, to come online for these types of activities as well. We should mention as part of the announcement yesterday that uh, this training, uh, well, starts next month. Uh, it's going to be available in Kitchener-Waterloo in the GTA, which I guess includes Brampton, which I think has more transport trucks per capita than any other city in the world. Every time we drive through there, it's, it's amazing. And, and that's good news, by the way, because that means commerce. Uh, and London, our listeners at CFPL uh, down in London uh, can understand that this is uh, there's going to be a training center there. Uh, for folks that want to get more information about this, Jonathan, I guess uh, would the, the portal for that would be the, the Women's Trucking Federation of Canada, wouldn't it? That's right. And you can you can just Google them. They've, they've yeah. got a website or you can also uh, email them directly programs at WTFC.ca. Well, it's uh, it was a good news story. Uh, minister McNaughton seems to be uh, a minister that really has his finger on the pulse of what needs to be done here. And he's, they've made some uh, incredible uh, moves over the last couple of months, really, to try to get uh, the economy back on their feet and, and listening to the, the workers, the people that are on the front lines, including the trucking industry. Uh, we'll see how this works out. Hopefully it's going to uh, swell your numbers and, and ease some of the pressure there on the drivers that are already there and uh, get this economy moving once again. Jonathan, thank you so much for this. Great talking with you this morning. Thank you. Take care. Jonathan Blackham, who is the uh, Director for Policy and Public Affairs uh, for the Canadian Trucking Alliance. And uh, that's uh, a good news story. We can uh, look at something like this and, you know, worker shortages, labor shortages is an ongoing problem in just about every facet of the uh, industry these days and in uh, the economy these days, for that matter. And uh, to figure that the government's uh, going to be out there and offering some assistance 
uh, for training and retraining, I guess, in some of these situations. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.